My name is Chet. I'm one of the pastors here. We are in the book of Philippians. So if you'll grab a Bible and go to the book of Philippians, if you don't have a Bible, there should be one tucked under the seat in front of you. We'll be on page 570 in one of these blue Bibles. Um, if this is your first time with us, we're glad that you're here this morning. We mostly just work our way through books of the Bible, and that's what we're doing. We're in Philippians. This is a letter written by the Apostle Paul. While he is in prison in Rome, he was under house arrest, so he most likely would have been chained to a guard in a home in Rome. He's writing this letter to a church in Philippi, which is about 800 miles away, um, that has... Uh, sent a gift, basically like a care package for him, where he is in Rome, that they gave him this gift because when you were under, under house arrest, you were still responsible for your own care, your own provision. And so they found out that he was in Rome under house arrest. They, they send this gift to him, and he's writing this letter back in thankfulness to them. And he just got done in what we were looking at last week in saying that he doesn't know whether he's going to live or die. He doesn't know if they're going to set him free. He doesn't know if they're going to execute him. It's where you get the verse that is, to live is Christ, to die is gain. He's not just pontificating about a theological truth. He's talking about a theological reality for himself while he is sitting in chains facing a very real potential death. He's saying, if, if they set me free, I'll keep serving the Lord. It'll be for Christ. Fruitful ministry is the way he puts it. There'll be fruitful labor. And if they execute me, I'll go be with Christ. To live as Christ, to die as gain. I'll, I'll get what's better. I'll get to go be with Christ. And he's now turning from that to some instruction to the Philippians. So we're in verse 27. He says this. Only let your manner of life be worthy of the gospel of Christ. So now he's turning to giving them instructions. He starts off with the word only. We should perk our ears up. He's boiling it down. He's giving them something essential. Kind of a, if, if you forget everything else, remember this. Now we know because of how talking with people goes, this isn't the actual only thing he's going to say. Otherwise, he wouldn't have written the rest of the letter. But he is saying, hey, this is primary. Pay attention. Only, and it's like, okay, what, what's the main thing we have to do? Let your manner of life be worthy of the gospel of Christ. Oh, is that all? That's a massive instruction. Your manner of life, so the way you live, let your whole life be fitting, matching to the gospel of Christ. Do you know what the gospel of Christ is? It's the message the reality, the news that the God of the universe, while we were in our sin and rebellion against him, took on flesh, was born as a human, that he lived a perfect sinless life so that he might pay the penalty for our sins. He dies on a cross, he's buried, he rises again, to show his victory over death and sin and hell, that his, his sacrifice was accepted. He doesn't stay in the tomb. He's not just like a, a, a good man that we look to for, for um, uh, some sort of motivation. No, he actually literally paid the price of our sin as a sacrifice and rose again so that we know that God's blessing is on him and that he accepts the sacrifice, that he is the King of kings, the Lord of lords, that everything he said about himself is real, that he rises and that all who trust in him 
are forgiven. Your, your debt is paid. It's gone. One of my favorite representations of this is in the movie, Oh Brother, Where Art Thou? Delmer goes down in the water. He gets baptized. He comes back out. He says, all my sins are forgiven. I'm clean. I'm washed. They're washed away. He says, even that piggly wiggly I knocked over in Yazoo. And his friends go, you said you were innocent of those charges. And he goes, well, I lied. And that's forgiven too. And that's the reality. It's that in Christ, we're forgiven. It's gone that he's paid the debt of our sin that was mounted against us, that stood to accuse us, that stood to drag us to hell. He's paid for it. That there's hope and redemption and forgiveness. And so Paul says, let your life match that. Now, for the Christians in the room, we should want that. We should want our life to match that. We should immediately say, yes, I actually do want to live in such a way that it, it's fitting, that it matches that, that it's worthy of that. But that's a heavy request. It's weighty. If someone came to you and said, hey, I, I got a guest coming over to my house and I need you to help, help me prepare a meal, help me get the house ready. They're going to be over on Saturday. And you're like, okay, I can help cook. They're like, you're a pretty good cook. Yeah, I'm okay. All right, cool. I need you to help cook. Uh, it is the newly um, crowned king of England, Charles III. He's coming to my house. So I need you to make a meal fit for a king. And you're like, pooh, I was going to do cheese grits. So I guess we could put shrimp in there. <laughs> I don't know. That's like my one dish I got. Like I didn't, I, for a king. And it's like, yeah, and remember he's British, so nothing spicier than salt. <laughs> but it needs to be delicious. It's like, okay, here we go. And that's some of what feels like here when he says, I want your manner of life to be worthy. And then all of a sudden he says, of the gospel. And it's, it elevates it to this, oh, okay, what does that look like? Well, he's going to tell us. He doesn't leave us here to, to just figure this out on our own. He doesn't leave the Philippian church to just figure it out on our own. He's going to say, this is what it would look like. This is a, a life matching the gospel. Before we read that part, let's pray. Because as Christians, we want this and we need the help of the Spirit to achieve it. Lord, we ask that we would, by your grace, live a life that corresponds to the gospel. That we would live in such a way that we proclaim the truth of the rescue and the hope and the kingship of Jesus. May our church look this way and may our individual lives look this way. And may by your grace and by the work of your spirit, this be carried out in a real practical level. In Jesus' name, amen. All right. Only let your manner of life be worthy of the gospel of Christ so that, so now he's going to say, if, it, if that's happening, if it's worthy of the gospel of Christ, so that whether I come and see you or am absent, whether I'm released from prison and get to make it to you or I'm kept in prison or I'm executed or I just can't make it to you, I may hear of you that you are. So now he's about to say, if your life, if you're living in a manner worthy of the gospel, this is what I'll hear about you. This is the report I'll get. That I may hear of you that you are standing firm in one spirit with one mind, striving side by side for the faith of the gospel and not frightened in anything by your opponents. I'm going to read that again. 
That I may hear of you that you are standing firm in one spirit with one mind, striving side by side for the faith of the gospel and not frightened in anything by your opponents. A life fitting to the message of the gospel, a life fitting to what Christ has done for us is one that is unified in the spirit with the church for the gospel fearlessly. Unified in the spirit with the church for the gospel fearlessly. That's what he lays out for them. So let's talk about that. The first part, unified in the spirit. He says that I may hear that you are standing firm in one spirit with one mind. This is the unified in the spirit with the church. So that you're in one spirit with one mind, you're on the same page. And specific to this context, he has said right before it that there are those who are uh, out for selfish ambition, they're out for their own name. They're out for their own good. And then below it, he's going to talk about what we read together, which is the humility of Christ and how we should have this same mind among ourselves, that though he was in the form of God, he humbled himself and took on the form of a man, that we should be humble and, and relate to one another. So there's this idea of that we would relate to one another in humility. Now, there is some question as to whether or not when he says in one spirit, he means the Holy Spirit specifically, and that should be a capital S, which is what the NIV does with it. It's the same word, same word he uses in similar phrasing that he uses in chapter two, verses one, where it says any participation in the spirit. And that's capital S to understand that as the Holy Spirit. Or if he just means kind of the way we use it, which is school spirit, or we were all of the same spirit, meaning we were all on the same page. And then it really just means in one spirit with one mind is kind of saying the same thing twice. I think... If you were to follow Paul's logic, because he uses this phrasing in other places, in Ephesians 4, he uses it in Corinthians, that if you were to ask him about it and say, okay, well, what do you mean unified? What spirit? What, what's our unity over? He would, you'd eventually get to where he would be saying, oh, well, the Holy Spirit, like the, the Holy Spirit is the one who's the one spirit that we have that's going to keep us unified. There's no way for the church to be unified without the work of the spirit. And so it's going to be ultimately a work of the spirit for this to happen, whether or not we need the Holy Spirit to work, whether he intentionally brings it to mind here, the Holy Spirit to mind, or whether or not he is just saying to be unified, that's still a work of the Spirit, so that we would be unified in the Spirit with one another, on the same page. Have you ever thought it'd be a lot easier to be a Christian if I didn't ha have to hang out with these other Christians? Have you ever thought, like, I would be in a group, and I know y'all say we should join a community group, but that's going to be tough. Yeah, it is. Do you know how agreeable I am when I'm by myself? <laughs> Every one of my ideas is brilliant. Like, I got married, and I was surprised that she wasn't able to catch up with that as quickly as I thought. It's like, I don't know. You don't think, I'm, I'm confused. I've always thought I was a genius. Why are you acting like this? But I'm patient with her. Um... <laughs> The idea that we're going to have to relate to other people takes work. It takes effort. There's, there's difficulty. And it takes the work of the Spirit to be in us, to create humility, to create grace. But y'all, we don't get to say, well, I love Jesus. I just don't love the church. Oh, I'm, I'm spiritual. I walk in the Spirit. The Holy Spirit, he, you know, I just, I go alone. And the Holy Spirit just tells me stuff and it's wonderful. And it's like, what church are you part of? I don't need one of those. You haven't been listening to the Spirit. He loves the church. He loves Jesus and he loves the church. And he's going to help you belong to a group of people who love Jesus and love the church. 
And it's going to take humility, and it's going to take work, and it's going to take effort, and it's going to be frustrating in times. But it's also going to be really beautiful. We're better together. It's going to be wonderful, and you're going to grow in ways that you hadn't intended to. You're going to grow in ways that you never would have grown if you were on your own. And I do want to add this. If, people, if you're saying, okay, I want to know how to listen to the Spirit. I want to know how to walk in the Spirit. What I would say is you begin by sticking your face in your Bible and then putting yourself around other Christians. That's how we walk well in the Spirit. That's how you learn how to hear the voice of the Spirit, to discern the voice of the Spirit. As you know the Word of God. You know that he's not going to lead you outside of what this says. He's going to, to speak and to teach you things. But he's not going to say something contrary to the scriptures. And you begin to discern his voice. You begin to learn how to walk in the spirit. I want you to walk in the spirit. I want you to be filled with grace. I want you to be used by God mightily. And I, I want you to be in the word so that it's tethered as we do that. And so that we get to walk in church family together. I want you to be in a situation when you were about to do something really stupid. But you're in church family and everybody in your group says, we love you. That's really stupid. I want you to be mad at them. And I want you to submit to them. I want you to get your Bibles out. I want you to say, why is it dumb? Why does everybody disagree with me? I don't want you to go home and go, wow, I'm the smartest person in my group. I'm the only one who knows what's right. I want you to have some humility. I want you to get what he's saying is that they would be in the same mind on the same page. But it's not just for no reason. It's not just so that they would have each other. That's wonderful. But there's a purpose behind it. He says, I want you to, what I want to hear about you is that you're standing firm. That y'all haven't fallen apart. That you haven't split up. That you haven't been knocked over. Why? Standing firm in one spirit with one mind, striving side by side for the faith of the gospel. There's a purpose to the unity given to the church. And that's the proclamation of the gospel. That we're better together in proclaiming the gospel and declaring that message. Y'all know that we have one primary thing that we're about as a church is that some more people might meet Jesus. Every once in a while I'll hear things and I'm like, yeah, yeah. People will say like, I like the church when it was small and then it's gotten bigger. Praise Jesus. You know, it got bigger with a bunch of sinners who needed grace, Right. And they're like, yeah, but they're aggravating. Yeah, so are you. <laughs> Me too. <laughs> so, that's the, we, we need Jesus. We're, we're here to proclaim this message. We're here to work together with this. This is why we want to keep the main thing, the main thing. You know, we don't do a whole lot. We have a big, pretty building the Lord's blessed us with, but we don't do a whole lot at this building. We don't invite a whole bunch of people here. We don't have a bunch of programs here because we want you to be out in the world telling people about Jesus. We want your time to be freed up. We love gathering and pointing to Christ together and singing together and walking and studying the scriptures together. But we want to be missionaries out in the world. That's the main thing. That's what we're after is to be standing firm with one, in one spirit, with one mind, striving side by side for the faith of the gospel. Uh, there's a church that I know of. I'm affiliated with it well enough. I know that at one point, I, I think they're a good church. I think they love Jesus. But I know that at one point they had multiple business meetings heated, passionate business meetings over the purchase of doorknobs. We're not going to do that here because it's not the main thing. I, I'm going to be honest with you. I don't want you to be that passionate about doorknobs. I just don't. And if you are, I want you to keep it to yourself, honestly. <laughs> Maybe don't tell people, you know. Like, 
We, we want to be about seeing people meet Jesus, which means that we give some freedom to our people who run ministries to make decisions and, and to handle their own budgets and to do some things. And every once in a while, there should be times when you show up and see something you don't like. I don't like that color. And then you should remind yourself, the gospel's the main thing. I've had people say to me, I don't like this. And I'm like, yeah, me neither. Move along, let's go. <laughs> it's not the main thing. We want to be pulling together, striving, not having strife, but striving for the gospel, which means that it should take some effort and some labor and some sacrifice. That is a life matching to the gospel. I think that if we were to fill this out, if we were to say, okay, I'm going to try to guess what Paul is going to say, to have a life and live a life in a manner worthy of the gospel so that I may hear of you. And if we began to fill that out, we would begin to say, he's probably going to say this, he's probably going to say this, he's probably going to say this. I'm sure we would put good things on the list, but it's possible it would all boil down to at some point, behave, be moral, live a life good enough. But it's not something that we earn. We respond to Jesus in obedience, certainly. We respond to Jesus in repentance. But a manner of life in a church that matches the gospel is a bunch of people who want to tell other people about the gospel. Because it's so good that he redeems sinners, that he offers grace, that he rescued us not because we're good and not because we're intelligent and capable and hardworking and that you need to come be a part of us if you're good enough. It's no, it's that he saves sinners. He redeems the weak. He died for us while we were still his enemies. We have a king who rules and reigns in love and grace and kindness towards us so that we strive to share the gospel. We're gonna get to uh, end our time this morning. We're not about to, so don't get all excited. There's more to go here. <laughs> but when we end our time, long, long time in the future from now, we're going to get to pray over two community groups that are getting launched out. And I'm so excited because launching healthy community groups, the multiplication of healthy groups is one of the things that we've said that this helps us see that we're actually trying to do this. And every time we multiply a group, everybody in the group a lot of times is like, yay. Because it hurts. It's sad. I've told people before, if, you're, if half your group is being sent out and your response is good riddance, you probably weren't doing a real good job of being in your community group. You should love those people. You should miss those people. I had someone this past week say to me, I miss every group I've ever been a part of. Yeah, absolutely. But we're striving for the gospel which means there are times that take sacrifice, it takes effort, it takes a little bit of something hurting a little bit for us to be able to see more people come to know Jesus. That's the best way I know to put it. I talk to our group leaders about this. I tell them, tell your group this, this is the way I think about it. At some point, if I'm hosting a group, you're hosting a group, the table is full. I got a table at my house that seats eight. We put a table outside to seat children because we love them so much, we just don't want to hear them, you know, while we're trying to eat. We want to be able to see them. There's a glass window, you know. Put that stick in. <laughs> at some point, there's no more room in my house. And you love these people. And so there's this, this desire to go, we did it, this is it. But as a church family, what we're hoping to do is to have group leaders train leaders in training and then eventually send them out to make disciples and to multiply. And when we do that, 
Now there's space. There's space at this table and there's space at that table. Every time I've ever multiplied a group, every time I've ever sent people out, I'm sad about people who are leaving this group who weren't in my group the last time we multiplied. Which means that if we hadn't done that, I never would have known this person, loved this person, seen this person meet Jesus. We didn't have room for him. We have room for him now, and now we got to make more room for the next person who's going to come in. And y'all, there is a table that has enough seats. There is a wedding supper of the Lamb that has the right number of seats. And there's going to be a day when we get to all sit around it. And there's going to be a day when we get to see the people who we got to know in life for a season to come to know Jesus. But then we get to see the next person who we got to see come to know Jesus. And the next person, through our striving to proclaim the gospel, the effort and the intentionality that we put down. And there's going to be a day when we sit at the wedding supper where the king rules and reigns for all of eternity. And there are enough seats at the table. But until that day comes, we strive so that more people might come to know how good and glorious King Jesus is. More people might be at that table. So some of your money should walk out the door and go to mission work, to generosity, to this church. Some of there should be times where you're, you're mourning the loss of a community group while having to celebrate the launch of a new one. We should put effort in to see people come to know Jesus. That's the goal. So we stand firm in one spirit with one mind, striving side by side for the faith of the gospel. And then he says this. And not frightened in anything by your opponents. Not frightened in anything by your opponents. He he says, I want to hear. Y'all are on the same page. You're laboring to see people meet Jesus because he's so good and the gospel's so good and the hope of eternity is so good. And the fact that this isn't all we get, there's this this reality of forgiveness and joy. I want to hear that you're proclaiming that and I want to hear that you're not afraid of anybody who tells you to shut up. You know that Christians, we're not supposed to be scared of everything. This is one of the things that, that grates on me in our current cultural climate is that I hear a lot of noise on like online and stuff of Christians like ringing alarm bells all the time. We're not supposed to be scared of everything. Y'all, we have such a bigger story with a king who wins. And he's specifically saying they have opponents and they know that. One of the people who's the starter, one of the starting people of the Philippian church was a jailer who Paul met because Paul was beaten and thrown into jail. Paul's writing this letter from prison. They have real opponents who don't want the proclamation of the gospel. He says, I want to hear that you're not afraid of them. And if you follow Christian logic, what are we afraid of? They have nothing they can give you On the the grand scheme of eternity, there's nothing that anybody, if you're a Christian, that anybody can offer you. There's nothing that they can take away from you. And you can say like Paul, who very really means this, if I live, I'll serve Jesus, and if I die, I'll go be with him. So he says this, not frightened in anything by your opponents. This is a clear sign to them of their destruction, but of your salvation and that from God. That a lack of fear in the face of opposition declares the gospel. It cosigns it. It's a clear sign of your salvation and their destruction. 
Because those who would oppose the gospel are going to use human means to oppose it. But human means aren't supposed to work on Christians. All of them are supposed to short circuit. We'll throw you in jail. Okay. That's how jailers meet Jesus. The Philippian jailer is like, I just, I know it was bad, but I'm so glad he got arrested. But maybe they shouldn't have beat him, but I'm glad he got arrested. Paul says that everybody in the Roman guard, they know about the gospel because Paul's sharing the gospel to the Roman guard while he's in jail. We'll take everything from you. Okay, I'll get eternal versions of all that stuff. Because the Bible says anything sacrificed for the Lord, that our reward is great in heaven. Like that anything that you try to take from me is actually ultimately, you accidentally gave it to me forever. Like I don't, I don't know exactly how that works. I don't think it's like I got the best toaster in life, life if you stole it. But it's like, I think that there's just reward. He honors this. We'll kill you. Okay. Half a second later, I'll be standing before the king and I'll have done all the work I ever had to do. It's a clear sign to them of their destruction, but of your salvation. I love this quote. It's a story from a pastor in Romania when they were under communist occupation. He was preaching the gospel and putting it on tapes and passing them out. And he had passed it out and he got called in by some communist officers who were trying to stop the church. And they were correcting him, rebuking him, threatening him. And he says this, during an early interrogation, I had told an officer who was threatening to kill me. So he says, sir... Let me explain to you, let me explain how I see this issue. Your supreme weapon is killing. My supreme weapon is dying. Here's how it works. You know that my sermons are, uh, my sermons on tape have spread all over the country. If you kill me, those sermons will be sprinkled with my blood. Everyone will know I died for my preaching. And everyone who has a tape will pick it up and say, I'd better listen again to what this man preached because he really meant it. He sealed it with his life. So, sir, my sermons will speak ten times louder than before. I will actually rejoice in this supreme victory if you kill me. After I said this, the interrogator sent me home. It's a clear sign. I, I have hope that you can't touch. So when he says that the church is to be unafraid in all these situations... It's because we have something they can't touch and we serve a God they can't touch and he owns everything and guards everything and leads everything that we can trust him. And so in the middle of all this, there's nothing that they can give to us or take away from us. A life, a church lived out in response to how good the gospel is is that we would be humbly unified, working side by side, laboring together. And we are better together. We, we want you to be a missionary where you are. If you're the only person at your gym, if you're the only person in that class, if you're the only person uh, on your floor at work that's a Christian, we want you to be a, a missionary there. But we also want to be missionaries together because we're better together. Our groups are better together. There are certain things that you're good at, strong in, built for as a Christian that Someone else in your group isn't. And so we work better when we're a team, when we invite people in, and when we intentionally invite ourselves into other situations. So look, a lot of times as a group, you can say, hey, I've been inviting this person who doesn't know Jesus to join our group. 
but you can also invite the people who do know Jesus to join that person. Meaning that you know that they're going to go see this new movie or that they really would go throw axes or do a poker night or knit and drink tea or whatever it is. You know they'll accept that invitation. So you just smuggle other Christians into the situation. Hey, would you like to do blank? And they say, yeah. And then they show up and two people from your group are also there. And you just say, hey, welcome, whatever. And y'all hang out and just be normal Christian people who are kind and fun to be around. And then later when you say, hey, you want to come hang out with our group? You already know blank, blank, blank. You already met this person at that thing. It's easier to walk in. You ever been invited to a party and you only know one person there? What do you do? Okay. If you're like one of these people who's really good at parties, I'm not talking to you. I'm talking to everybody else. What do you do? You follow that? Oh, yeah, don't go. Correct. You follow that person around like a lost puppy. Like, hey, be my friend. Hey, talk to me. Hey, 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 hey. Or you do what I do and you grab six cookies and stand in the corner. You just, I'm, I, I don't know, my friend's over there, I only know them. And someone's like, oh, hey, how you know them? And you're like, they're my friends. And they're like, oh, neat. And then they walk off and you're like, I'm, I'm real good at this. That shouldn't be your invitation all the time to people who, hey, do you want to come hang out at my house uh, with a bunch of people you don't know, read a book you don't care about, and do some weird things that you're not sure about, like pray? Also, since you don't know much about Christianity, it could be weirder than that and you don't know. Surprise. You want to do that? I invited them. They didn't come. Yeah, okay. It was, a, it was a high, you know, it's a high bar. But if you can get your church family around them to be friends with them, to be kind to them, to show them that we aren't weird and that the message is wonderful. So that we're alive in response to the gospel, unified, striving side by side for the gospel without fear. And he keeps going. He's going to say, he's pressing into this idea and he's kind of bringing this in front of them. Look at verse 29. For it has been granted to you that for the sake of Christ, you should not only believe in him, but also suffer for his sake. It's been granted to you that you should not only get to believe in him, that that's given to you, that's granted, that was graced to you, that was given to you. That's what granted means, it's a gift. It was given to you that you would believe in him, but also that you would get to suffer for his sake. We're going to talk about suffering for his sake in a second. But take a moment. Do you believe in Christ? That was given to you. He says it was given to you that you would get to believe in Jesus. Y'all, do you know there, there are people who don't? There are people who don't have a hope of an eternity. There are people who haven't had their sins forgiven. There are people who are still dead in their trespasses. And it's been given to you that you would believe. Some of you, you're the only person in your family who believes. Some of you, you're a wild minority from your, your country of origin who believe. It's odd that you would believe. Some of you, this is a, a lineage of Christian faith in your household, and that was granted to you by the grace of God. 
Don't blink at that. I mean, don't sneeze at that. Don't, don't just move on past that like that's just something to take for granted. It's something to understand that it's been so wonderfully good that you have a hope of eternity through the work of Jesus that was not earned by you, was not given to you by your works or your ability or your intelligence, but it was given by the blood of Christ and his goodness and mercy on your behalf. And he says, it was given to you that you might believe And it was also given, he's talking to the Philippian church, but I think this rolls right into us, that you would get the opportunity, the grace, the gift of suffering for the sake of Christ. And that's how we're supposed to see it. Do you know that if you'll strive for the sake of the gospel, there's a chance that at some point you'll get to suffer reproach for the name of Jesus? And do you know how wonderful that is? You know, there's a chance that you might get mocked or reviled. Do you know there's a chance that someone might oppose you? Do you know there's a chance that something really earthly bad might happen to you that is as this beautiful heavenly gift that you might get to suffer for the sake of Christ, that you might actually get to drop some sweat and some blood and some money and some effort and some tears for something that rolls into eternity? That's how we're supposed to see that. That's what Jesus says, Matthew 5. He's talking to his disciples. He says, blessed are those who are persecuted for righteousness' sake, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Blessed are you when others revile you and persecute you and utter all kinds of evil against you falsely on my account. Rejoice and be glad, for your reward is great in heaven, for so they persecuted the prophets who were before you. If we labor for the gospel, there's a chance that we get to operate on Jesus' account that we get to be reviled on his account, that we get to be participating him in, in suffering for his sake, and it is blessed. That's why the disciples in Acts chapter 5, when they're beaten for sharing the gospel, it says, then they left the presence of the council, rejoicing that they were counted worthy to suffer dishonor for the name. So what if you strive to share the gospel with people in, in your school, in your classes, What if they oppose you? And what if eventually they revile you and they accuse you? And what if on that day we do what Jesus says and we look at him and say, thank you. Thank you that I got a taste of what it was like to be you and to suffer. And thank you that I got to join in your suffering for the sake of those who don't want to know you. What if you share the gospel at work? And they tell you not to. And then you do it again. And they say, if you keep this up, you're going to be in trouble. What if you graciously, humbly say, I'm going to have to keep trying. I'm going to keep trying to share the gospel. What if one day you get fired? Not because you're bad at your job. I want them to have to find three people to replace you if you get fired. But, but what if you just had these opportunities and you were sharing the gospel and you were trying to point people to Jesus and they were opposing you? And what if you walk out into the parking lot and you look at the sky, you look up, raise your eyes to the Lord and you say, Lord, I don't know how I'm going to pay my bills because that was my job, but I trust you. And thank you that I got to suffer reproach for the sake of your name. Now, there's ways to walk this out in wisdom and there's ways to be as wise as a serpent, innocent as a dove, but y'all, we're not supposed to be afraid. We're not supposed to have one little remark from some kind of an opponent to the gospel and we just clam up and stop. 
May we stand in the spirit with the church for the gospel fearlessly because it's so worth it. Because the message is worth it. Because none of the other things that we labor for are ultimately worth it. None of the other stuff lasts. None of the other stuff stretches into eternity. No other message, no other, no other person forgives sin and rescues. There's a movie that came out in 1998 called Saving Private Ryan. And it's, it's a good movie. It's a war movie. There's a, a four brothers and three of them die. And as they go to write all three of the letters and send all of the folded up American flags to the mother at the same time, they notice that there's one brother left and they just decide we're going to go find him and we're going to send him home. It's the premise of the movie. So they task a captain and a handful of people to go find Ryan and bring him home. And as they're going, several of them die. They die going to get one guy out of the war. And the movie ends with Private Ryan as an old man standing over the graves of one of the men who died for him and talking to it. And he says, I've thought every day about what you've did and I've tried. I've tried to live something fitting. And y'all, we're the people who know Jesus, know what he did, know what awaits. Oh, let's live in a way fitting. Let's respond in a way worthy to the gospel. Let's live in a way that makes way more sense with Christ and eternity than with the American dream. Let's pray. Lord, we ask that by your grace, the reality of eternity would grip us. We ask, Lord, that you would help us to see the hope that is in Christ and to respond, to tell other people about him to repent of our refusing to submit to a church, to repent from our not walking in the spirit and studying the word and, and listening to your voice and following your will, to repent of all the times when we've lost the thread on what the main thing is so that we're worried about other things that don't matter. But Lord, to walk fearlessly together and to see people come to know you. We pray that you would bless this church with more and more people who are saved by grace that will step in and walk shoulder to shoulder with us to see more and more people be saved by grace because this message is too good for us to sit on. You are a glorious king and we love you in Jesus name. Amen. amen. Verse 30 says, engaged in the same conflict that you saw I had and now hear that I still have. And I should have read that earlier. The band's going to come back up. What Paul's saying is that they are laboring. I went to pray and I was like, I didn't read my whole text. <laughs> Paul's saying that they are laboring in the same conflict, he's telling them not to be afraid in the same conflict that they saw that he had, meaning that he was preaching the gospel and went to jail, and that they see that he still has because he's in jail, meaning they had real opponents. 
And so I should have just read that earlier and said that sentence earlier and then said all the other stuff I said. You're welcome. (laughs) The hope as we stand and sing and respond is that we would take a moment to consider the matchless worth of Christ and that we would say, okay, Lord, let let me have a life that tries to mirror that and point to that. Let me have a life that only makes sense in light of that. Let's stand and sing.